Welcome to the Dry Eye Coach podcast series, Click on Dry Eye, your insider pass to the most exclusive dry eye topic. The series will raise awareness about the current and future state of ocular surface disease. The podcast will focus on a variety of topics. Before we get to our next episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor. As a global specialized company dedicated to ophthalmics, Santon brings a 130-year history of scientific knowledge and organizational capabilities to research, development, and commercialization of pharmaceuticals, surgical and medical devices, and OTCI care products. Santon is the market leader for prescription ophthalmic pharmaceuticals in Japan and its products now reach patients in more than 60 countries. Santon provides products and services to contribute to the well-being of patients, their loved ones, and consequently to society. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with one of my partners and mentor, Doug DeVries, who practices in Sparks, Nevada, about novel dry eye treatment pathways. Welcome, Doug. Thank you, Walt. I know about your practice, but maybe everybody on here does not know about your practice. So actually, can you tell them about our practice? Yes, I will. I'll tell about our practice. Uh, it is a uh, 30-year-old uh, referral practice that was uh, initially started to support the needs of the optometric community. Uh, so we do a lot of surgery. We have done, and we uh, see a lot of medical patients as well. Uh, and uh, one of the things that has happened specifically to my practice is because of the over just this huge demand for dry eye patients and involved in surgery uh, that now I limit most of my practice to really treating ocular surface conditions uh, that are surrounding uh, surgical, post-surgical, or uh, just referrals from the uh, general uh, optometric and uh, ophthalmology community. So why is dry eye so important to your practice? Would you say it's just naturally grown out of this co-management? Well, yeah, it is, uh, because I think as we started to learn more and more, and what really, I think, put it over the uh, the edge was when, with the, uh, the LASIK boom and creating flaps, and we were seeing so many patients that then had this, you know, that uh, four weeks after, six weeks after they developed this dryness, and so, uh, you know, my partner came to me uh, all these years ago and said, you know, this whole thing with dry eye, and whether it's post-cataract, or pre-cataract or post-LASIK, pre-LASIK, you know, we have to figure that out. And he said, by we, I mean you, because I'm going to stay in the operating room. So there's been a lot of changes over the past two decades. And it's been amazing that you're one of these people that's been on the forefront. I mean, you're one of my personal heroes. Um, can you discuss the mechanism of action for some of the newer treatment options that are out now that differ from what we used to do? Well, yeah, let's go back to 20 years ago and we had punctal plugs and artificial tears. And that was it. I mean, that's what we counted on. Actually, Doug, uh, as, we had baby shampoo. Dry eye treatment. We had baby shampoo. I didn't mean to interrupt, but go oh, ahead. Baby shampoo. Yeah, we had baby shampoo. Again, <laughs> more inflammation. So. <laughs> so, when you know, as we look at mechanisms of actions and what they happen, I mean, certainly the first one that came out uh, where we actually had a therapeutic dedicated because we had we had some steroids, but steroids weren't widely used at that particular time because it really wasn't known about inflammation uh, like we know at this point. So when uh, cyclosporin was introduced in uh, gosh 2003, it was really to help suppress those T cells to kind of break that cycle of inflammation, and it just took a little bit longer, and we had to really encourage our patients to stick with the treatment because we weren't going to get immediate 
immediate gratification. I think that was one of the problems is both practitioners as well as patients didn't get that immediate gratification, gratification like you would say with a bacterial infection and antibiotic. And so you had just a tremendous amount of dropout. And I think from that, it just kind of tainted things. And then as, you know, uh, fast forward to a few more years, we start realizing a lot more uh, the idea. And a lot of us were using steroids in conjunction with cyclosporin. But then when lafitergrass came out and we, we really found that, you know, an LFA1 antagonist where we could surround that T cell and keep that from docking uh, with the ICAMs and the LFA1s, uh, that was really something that brought about faster treatment. So again, I think it renewed the interest at, at that particular time. So yeah, mechanism of action has really advanced and our understanding has advanced with that as well. Uh, then as, as you continue on with the, the new mechanisms of action that we see that we see now, uh, say with uh, Tervaya with the nasal spray and actually uh, stimulating the ophthalmic branch of the trigeminal nerve nasally with a nasal spray, again, a completely different novel mechanism of action. And I think that then, you know, as you see other uh, refinements with mechanism of action, you also have to include mechanism of delivery. And that's when, you know, as we look at something like Sun releasing uh, another cyclosporin that was in a higher concentration, but a nanomicellular to get better penetration. So now all of a sudden you have over three times greater going to the surface. So, you know, I think mechanism of action has really been something that should encourage uh, most of us, you know, if you're not treating it, jump back in, or if you had less than uh, stellar results in the past, jump back in and, and try to see some of those uh, those results you get with both different mechanism of action and mechanism of delivery. Hey, Doug, you mentioned uh, Tirvaya, and that is definitely a, a novel uh, treatment and, and mechanism of action. How's that been working for you? And, and what have you been telling your patients about it? Well, and exactly that, Walt. I've been telling my patients that this is a novel uh, a mechanism of delivery as well as a mechanism of action uh, of action and explaining how uh, that that ophthalmic branch of the trigeminal nerve which has the terminal ends in the uh, in the nasal passageway can be stimulated to create a full complement tear and what i found more than anything is interest i mean patients are interested rather than a drop to that they're interested in different uh different ways to be able to treat that. Uh, too early really to tell, but I mean, I have a lot of prescriptions out there and some of it you judge by on their sample, do they actually fill it? And then you have to differentiate if they didn't fill it, was it due to a cost because they didn't have access or was it that they didn't find it successful? So I think in the next month, as we start to see some of these patients come back, we're gonna have a lot better idea on exactly how that's playing out with patients. But I'd say, tremendous amount of interest by patient and a willingness to try it. So with so many, you know, pharmaceuticals in the water and so many options now, which we have, that's amazing. How do you choose which one's the right fit for your patient? Yeah, great question. And I think that causes a lot of confusion. I mean, if I see a patient that has been on chronic artificial tears or they've been trying two or three more tears, I'm going to go to a therapeutic, first of all. 
I'm going to jump in. And that doesn't mean that I'm also not going to talk about doing something for the lids and uh, that we're going to have to do something to improve it. But remember, all of these that we're, that we're dealing with the lids and we're dealing with inflammation, it, it's as a result of what that inflammation has caused, say those meibomian glands, say the, the PEK on the cornea. So I will take a look and say, okay, depending on the level, I might add a steroid, something like Isuvis, which works very well, which is, again, a different formulation. I mean, it's the same molecule, lodopredinol, but the difference is in the mechanism of delivery. So, you know, you have that mucus penetrating particle that grabs that, goes through the mucus, and again, have over three times the penetration to the target tissue. But that's how I, I mean, I know I'm going to use a therapeutic. I want to find out what they're going to, the patient's going to have access to. I mean, I certainly have preferences of where I'd like to start. I want fast acting. I want the patient to recognize uh, some improvement as soon as possible, because at that way, they're pushing you along instead of you trying to pull them along. Yeah, it's a lot easier to give a high five than it is to have to pull out your cheerleading pom-poms. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if patients get that, and I, I think that's why, you know, when we look at something like Lafitigress that, you know, in, in half of the clinical style, uh, clinical trials that in two weeks, uh, they showed statistically significant uh, improvement in symptoms. That's great news, as opposed to just keep dragging that out to the patient until they get, they get results. But at, at the same time, I mean, when you're using something like a cyclosporin versus a Lafitigress, remember, different mechanisms of action. And so there's no reason that they can't be combined. There's no reason. I mean, if you have a patient with systemic hypertension, it's not unusual at all to see them on two or three systemic hypertension meds. And for some reason, insurance companies just kind of put us in a box and say, oh no, you get one and only one. Well, it's not true. I mean, if they had the different mechanisms of action and getting a synergistic effect, I don't hesitate. And I probably have about 20% of my patients that are on both a cyclosporin you know, as an immunosuppressive and an alpha one antagonist in, uh, in lafitigris. And then would you add a third one with a steroid? Absolutely. It depends on how well you're controlling those symptoms. We do have so many options uh, out there and we've all had this question. I know the three of us from, from colleagues say, you know, are you a lafitigris guy? You're a cyclosporin guy. You know, one of the things that you just mentioned, Doug, was the delivery systems. And so, so, you mentioned CEQA, we know about Restasis 0.05%. You know, so how do you make that decision between the two or is it gonna be more of an insurance making that decision for you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to be sarcastic, but yeah, no, I have preferences. I want fast acting. And yet uh, I, I tell patients, you know, and I, and I think it, it's, you have to be comfortable with side effects, you have to be comfortable with advising your patients what to expect and creating those expectations. Uh, but you also have to be uh, you have to be nimble in that you can't always get exactly what you want. But uh, you know, I've uh, in a in a recent education that I did is that there's there's not a wrong way to treat unless it's doing nothing, and that's wrong. But if you're doing something and if you're going, if you like. If you like lafitigris and you say, hey, I want the fastest response, I'm going to deal with the taste, I'm going to deal with the side effect, then you go for it and you explain to the patient, this is your first choice. If you like the fact that the 0.09% cyclosporin and the nanomacellular uh, formulation on that, and again, you, you set the expectations with the patient, then go for it and explain to them that 
if the insurance doesn't give them access, they're still going to get a drug that works. They're still going to have some. It's not like that's a failure at that point. It just may take a little bit longer. We may need to add some other treatment along the way. And, you know, you just need to be able to pivot a little bit with that. So, you know, I don't think, you know, in terms of absolutely being locked in, I would like to have, you know, initially one of the drugs that is going to get better penetration and is going to uh, turn around symptoms faster. So in Sequa or in Lofetagrest. But it doesn't mean that if all of a sudden they don't have access and now they're using Restasis that I consider, well, that's a failure. That's not going to work because, you know, I have 18 years of experience with Restasis working. Yeah. Your job just becomes a little different as a provider at that point. Yeah, and so it, may, it mainly comes down to understanding all the different drugs and how they're utilized to set proper expectations uh, for patients. All right, so now we're going to have fun with you and, and give you different case scenarios to, to show us and the listeners where the MOA comes in. So the first one, actually, Tracy, you can ask him the first one. Okay, so you have a new patient who presents with moderate signs and symptoms. Where do you start? Moderate. They walk in the door. They've been. They've been everywhere. Moderate signs and symptoms. They're coming to you because you're the guy. Okay. Where I'm going to start at that point, and we'll talk about different mechanisms of action as well. Is I, I am going to, unless there's a contraindication, they're going to be on an omega six, omega three, uh, something like hydroi with gamma linoleic acid. But that's not going to be. I'm just not just going to leave them on that and give them time. That's just. I'm going to tell them you're going to be on that. If they have any lid involvement at all, I'm probably going to give them a commercially available warm compress, like with metabeads, with brutal compress, uh, something like that. But they're also going to get a prescription for a therapeutic at that point. They are going to be be prescribed a therapeutic now, and we have a lot of uh, options. If it's if it's strictly where we're getting episodic, and this patient isn't uh, isn't this chronic symptoms all the time, I'd probably go with an isuvus at that point. Would I hesitate if there was not coverage to go with a lafitigris or a sequel? Not at all. But they're going to get a therapeutic at that point. And now that we have the nasal spray, I mean, that's another one that can enter in. But I looked at is, you know, is that going to be a primary? Uh, I'm going to get things under control as fast as I can because I just don't have the experience. But I wouldn't hesitate to add it in at some point as well. So I'm gonna add something to that. So that same new patient was referred for cataract surgery with moderate signs and symptoms. So does that change anything? I mean, typically it would go with a steroid, but I'm it just does. curious. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely changed something because now we're trying to be expedient as possible in getting the best readings for that patient so that we can get them to surgery. You know, we don't wanna have that delay too long. The patient gets frustrated. So yeah, most likely at that point, I'm probably with that, they're going to get a therapeutic, but I'm probably going to go to a lid procedure. If they have any evidence of MGD to get them quickly to that, I'll start them on something to, to take care of their inflammation. And it might be multiple drugs at that point, but I'm going to recommend a lid procedure pretty fast. And if they're surgical patients, I may not go through that, that four, uh, the four sessions of the IPL, I might go right to the lid procedure, see if we can't get that mybum really helping get some, uh, some quality readings. Yeah. And then the other drug that's pretty, that they have the data is going to be with Sequa at one month, the improvement in corneal standing. So that's the other one that I would uh, consider. So your, our next patient, so what about a new symptomatic patient? We'll say their speed score is 20. 
Uh, they've tried several artificial tears, but they have minimal signs. So not much staining? Not much staining. Yeah, it, you know what? That's an, that's an ideal patient because that also tells me that they have pretty good neural upregulation. So they don't have that neurosensory abnormality yet. So we're going to get a response on that. And I think that, you know, they would fit in the same category. I don't care if they have staining. I actually consider that a victory that I'm getting to it before the damage is done. And I think that's great, especially those patients that really sense that. And, and as another tip, I would say, you know, what you want to do is check, check corneal uh, sensitivity on these patients, because it also gives you a reason that you can tell the patient. And I tell the patients all the time, if I've checked corneal sensitivity and I see uh, a decreased amount of corneal sensitivity, I'll tell that patient as we start your treatment, and it doesn't matter whether it's lid treatment, it doesn't matter it's a therapeutic, I'll tell them, you may not feel what I'm going to see you're going to have to rely on me for the improvement because they have that down regulation and they may not really have that. And it also, it's a lot easier to tell the patient that before they come back and don't feel results than it is when you're trying to explain away why they don't feel results. So corneal sensitivity is a real big one for me and, and really looking at those and saying, hey, if you're not going to feel what I'm going to see, you're going to have to rely on me. It may take a little bit longer. Yeah. So back with the symptomatic patient, uh, does on-label matter? Because we do have a couple of drugs that are on-label for the treatment of the symptoms. Does that matter to you or does it come, go back to coverage? Uh, it really goes back to access the, I mean, because I've been using things for off-label so many times that it's, it's kind of nice when something's on-label. But I think to a lot of doctors, it does make a difference. And I think it, and if it gets, you know, 5% more treating because it's on label, then I think it's a giant success because, and not just for that on label, you know, like Isuvacid is on label for a steroid, not just that, but they're going to be involved in other therapeutic agents and treat more. I mean, when we see this huge disconnect between the number of patients and the number of people on some type of therapeutic treatment, I mean, it's just phenomenally low, some 35 million and 1.5 million be, uh, being treated. So I think that if that generates more for people being on label, I think that's great. Uh, you know, I've been kind of doing this for a lot of years, but I still think it's good that we have a label on it. So I got one for you. So the patient that comes in and says, doctor, I feel good on the therapy that you've put me on most of the day. But boy, I tell you, when I wake up in the morning, that is when I feel the driest. Is there anything that we can do about that morning dryness? Absolutely. And I think that is a key question that I ask all my patients have been asking for a long time. And if we can actually, because I mentioned earlier, everything we do right now is in response to inflammation and trying to quiet inflammation. If we can actually get to the root cause of inflammation and stop it as it's happening, and that patient you described probably is an exposure patient due to nocturnal agophthalmus, a, a lid misalignment, uh, you know, just a floppy eyelid. They're just not completely sealing those eyes because the best time of day should be for that patient first thing in the morning. So, you know, utilizing something like the, uh, the sleep tight, sleep right cover to keep that eye. And it's a very simple device. And it's not like tape, it's hypoallergenic, it's latex free. It'll actually keep that eyelid closed all night long. And then you've attacked inflammation at the root cause, which is how it's happening. And then it just inflammation begets more inflammation. So yeah, it really has shown some, some great success, but it's a key question to ask. 
one of your symptoms. And if you're waking up that way, then they don't have a raging blepharitis or they don't have this incredible demodex going on, then you have to look at, at the potential for exposure. How do you do? What was the name of that again? It had a really cute name. Could you tell us what that name of that um, device is? That it's called Sleep Tight, T-I-T-E, Sleep Right, R-I-T-E. And it can be found on I, like E-Y-E, sleeptight.com. So do you have any final pearls on the novel treatments of dry disease? We've talked about a lot of great medications. We've talked about some high-end pieces of equipment. We've talked about taking care at night. Is there any, and uh, um, nasal neurostimulation. Is there anything that we've forgotten about or anything else that you feel like, yeah, in, that we can't end our discussion without speaking about? Well, I think the, the biggest thing, Tracy, is use it. I mean, start and, and make that move where you're using something. Again, the only way you do something wrong is by not taking a, an action, uh, an actionable step. And I think that's the biggest because with the neurostimulation, with with Isuvis being for episodic dry eye with, you know, uh, I mean, really all these great drugs that we've used for a long time with Restasis and Sequa and, and Zydra. I mean, we know we're going to get results. You just have to set the expectations. And I'd say set expectations for your patient, but use them. Well, thank you so much, Doug, for your time and your expertise um, to helping our colleagues better understand the mechanism of action of various dry eye treatment pathways. Well, thank you. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody, and uh, thanks much uh, for inviting me.